If you have a Bible with you or a device, <laughs> I just I don't even like saying that, but I'm using a device. So, um, open with me to the Book of Acts, chapter twenty-one. Acts twenty-one. We finished chapter twenty last week as we looked at Paul's tearful farewell uh, to the elders that he had summoned from Ephesus down to a. Uh, city called Miletus. It was about 30 miles to the south. Uh, He had reminded them that he had lived as an example among them in humility, having the heart of a a servant. And uh, he didn't want to bring any reproach upon himself or upon his ministry. Uh, He had done well uh, personally and publicly. So uh, he also told them that he was headed for Jerusalem. Uh, he knew he had been people as as he had traveled through Macedonia coming up to this point at, at various churches along the way, people would come to him and say, look, there's trouble ahead. Uh, and so here with these Ephesian elders, he's letting them know there's trouble ahead. And we'll look at that more as we go along this morning. Uh, Chains and tribulations is how the Bible renders it. Uh, but he was unmoved, undeterred at the threat of danger. He let them know uh, that he gave his life a lower priority than fulfilling the ministry that he'd received from the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Remember, we also looked at that his intention was to finish his race, but not just to finish his race. He wanted to finish his race with joy. Uh, Again, we talked about that. I, I thought about my friend Al. He finished the race this last Monday night. Uh, and he finished well. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, well, how does a man finish well? He runs well. And Al ran well. And uh, I, I, I want to hear what I am positive Al heard when he showed up on the other side. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what I live for. I just want to hear that. I I cannot wait uh, to graduate from this place. I mean, I will, but (laughs) anyway, so Paul knew that he wouldn't see these men again. He tells them that, and it's it's a sorrowful time for them uh, that on this side of heaven, he's not going to be there. He will not be a resource for them. Uh, He would write back to them. He would talk to, he would write back to their future pastor, who was a guy that he was, discipling along, a guy by the name of Timothy, familiar with him. But he told them that he was innocent of the blood of all men. And I think that that's a powerful, powerful statement. We looked at that last week, that that was a Jewish idiom. (laughs) I think the example I use is, if I tell you I have my eye on you, that doesn't mean I have one eye closed and I'm following you around, staring at you with one eye. No, what it means is, uh, there's an intention, there's an intended meaning below that. So he's not saying, look, if you are not responsible for the gospel, that their blood is on your hands. However, there's a, he is conveying absolutely the seriousness of being faithful to carry out uh, that which is appointed to each one of us, having the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador for Christ. Very important. And, and he tells them that. Uh, when he says that, that, in the context of that, he says, I've held back nothing. Uh, and I've given you the full counsel of God. Uh, again, part of why we do what we do here, a central part of why we do what we do here. Uh, 
is that in giving you, in studying God's word, verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, we're giving the full counsel of God. We cover everything. The other thing about that is he is at the end of the line with these guys that he had raised up. They had been caught up in all kinds of pagan idolatry and so on. Uh, I mean, Ephesus was a new church three years before when he had come there and planted this church. Uh, so he's telling these guys, look, the responsibility that I've had to lead you, to shepherd the flock, I'm transferring to you. So he tells them, he, he, he says, look, take heed to yourselves. Make sure that your life is lining up and take heed to the flock of God to which you've been entrusted. So he went on to warn them about when savage wolves would come in. Again, just by recap, because there's no chapter breaks here, I'll give you a, a brief summary of what we looked at uh, as we get into the text today. Uh, and we talked about uh, interesting identifying wolves. Very simple. <laughs> What's the difference between a wolf in sheep's clothing and a genuine sheep? Uh, and you can tell by what they eat, because sheep eat grass, and wolves eat sheep. Uh, that's just very simple. <laughs> and and it, I think it's a great metaphor, and unfortunately, I've seen it, uh, and we'll guard against it, because that's just something that happens. He doesn't say they, they might, he says they will come in. And, and again, exhorted you guys, don't go on a wolf hunt, we're fine. <laughs> That's not, that's not what I'm sorry, trying to say. So he also talked to them about trouble rising up from within the church. Uh, that ambitious men with an agenda to draw people away after themselves uh, would come about. And so uh, he, again, he's transferring this response for this great responsibility that he had had for shepherding the flock there in Ephesus to these men. Uh, very important. He says, look, uh, the, the the work of a shepherd is not just to feed. Yes, it is. And part of my job is to bring the flock good food. And I know that doesn't have to be me. I mean, but I do take that very seriously. But it's also to protect. Uh, that's what shepherds do. So we also talked about uh, the fact that these men that would come in, that would draw people away, that they wouldn't look sinister. They don't come in with snidely whiplash you know, mustaches and all that. You know, no, they come, they look just like everybody else. And, and yet it's through their works that those things show up. So it's be on guard for the flock. So uh, in First John 4, years after these events, John, as an old man living at Ephesus, he would exhort the people. He said, test the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So chapter 20 ended with Paul and the, and the elders. They kneeled down together to pray. Uh, and it's a, a beautiful scene. The, the last two verses of, of chapter 20, uh, it says, And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, as you know, there's no chapter breaks in the original. Uh, so continuing on in 21, chapter 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz, uh and the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. 
So notice the word we in here. Evidently, Luke is still part, he is still with them because if you are studying through the book of Acts, when Luke is talking about times when he is not with them because he was left at Philippi, uh, way back on the second journey and then he was re, he rejoined them on the third, uh, he talks about they and them. Uh, and, and when he is with them, the narrative changes to the first person to we and us. So, yeah, evidently he's still there and these are things that he is witnessing himself. So, uh, he says they ran a straight course to cause, and it, 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 when you get done with a long trip, <laughs> you're gonna have one of two comments. Either we made good time or, oh my goodness, that was long. We had to stop at every rest. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> My wife's looking at me. Uh. <laughs> and what he's saying, essentially, when he says we ran a straight course, is we made good time. They had the wind at their backs, and so there they go. So uh, I, I think that, it, it, Luke, if you read through, again, just an overview of the book of Acts, he's really familiar with sailing terms, and I think that that's fascinating. Uh, we'll see here that he, he even calls the, the, the ship in the feminine, uh, he talks about the ship, refers to the ship as her, which we still do today. So, uh, they, now from Cos, which was an island in the Aegean Sea, they sailed to Rhodes, which is another island in the Aegean Sea. It was famous for, it had, there was a big university there, and I could go into the whole history there, but don't have time. But, uh, from there, they went to Patara. Now, Patara was on the mainland, but it was on the southern coast of Asia. And it was a main seaport for ships that were bound for Syria. Verse 2, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, which is just it's an extension of Syria to the south, uh, we went aboard and set sail. So this must have been a larger ship because, and I'll show you on a map here in a minute, that they they smaller ships hugged the coastline they needed smoother water but uh, the larger ships could do the direct route and and Paul was very interested remember he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost and so he gets on a larger ship with him and his companions and he had a number of guys traveling with him because they were taking the offering back to Jerusalem the, that was represented by these guys that were coming from different churches and so they get on this ship at Patara, and they head straight away for Tyre. So verse 3, and when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, calling to, or sailing to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Again, there's that word, her. So interesting, on this first map, it just shows you that they kind of hopscotch along the coast of uh, Asia there, Asia Minor, Little Asia, and then they set sail across open water, uh, go past Cyprus and on to Tyre. Now, I have to wonder, too, remember when Paul had been on his first journey, uh, they took a guy by the name of John Mark, and he was Paul, and Barnabas was the guy that had reached out to Paul from the church at Antioch, and Paul had gone up to Antioch, and he and Barnabas had set out together with John Mark. Now, John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. All right, so... <laughs> Uh, when they got to the southern coast there, uh, after they went through Cyprus, John Mark bailed and he went back to Jerusalem. And so the second journey, uh, Barnabas said, hey, Paul, let's take John Mark. <laughs> and Paul said, absolutely not. And they had a, they had a pretty good flap about it. Uh, and so John Mark ended up 
Barnabas and Paul split. Paul ended up teaming up with Silas for his second journey. And Barnabas took his nephew, John Mark, and he went to Cyprus. And so as Paul is sailing by, I mean, I have to think that he's looking at this island and wondering, I wonder what's going on with Barnabas. I wonder how things are going. I mean, they didn't have phones and modern communication. So chances are very good that he hadn't seen Barnabas in a long time. Uh, just a thought. I, it, the Bible doesn't tell us, but after their split, and I believe that they did, by the way, I do believe that they mended that uh, before Paul was executed in Rome years later. But anyway, so they go past Cyprus and they land in Tyre and uh, says, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, during this time, because there had been such persecution in the church, uh, that when believers went to a, a new city, when they traveled, they would immediately, their first priority would be to find other believers because there was a really hostile environment out there. And you didn't know, it was, it was definitely know your audience uh, because they were ruthless. The Jews that were upset with Paul, uh, we'll see as we, especially as we get into next week, when we see that uh, they literally want to tear him apart when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, so it was dangerous. So they seek out other believers. And uh, we'll also see that in verse 7 and verse 16 in this chapter. Uh, and the other thing about that, this church that they look at, or that they get become involved with, these believers that they find, they were probably ones who had been ejected from Jerusalem during the uh, the persecution that Paul himself had started. In Acts eleven nineteen. Uh, talking about the persecution of Stephen. So now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's where we're at, Cyprus and Antioch and preaching the word. So we know that those churches were started out of necessity for the people to leave Jerusalem. Talk about that more in a sec. So uh, at some point during his time at Tyre, he was there for a week, he is warned again, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be, it's going to be a problem. Uh, as I mentioned, he said in, in verse 23 of chapter 20, that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, uh, saying chains and tribulations await me. So uh, I, and this is where I'm going to get into interpretation here, folks. I believe that Paul was not out of God's will by going to Jerusalem. I believe that God was speaking to these people, chains and tribulations await him. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's here in God's word. We're not going to try to deny that. But I believe that they were making a human interpretation because I believe that Paul's warning about Jerusalem was to prepare him, not to pull him away. And so what they're doing, they're receiving this information, the people that were that had this particular prophetic gift, they're saying, look, don't go because I understand in my spirit, the Holy Spirit is showing me that you're going to be in trouble when you go. Well, uh, and we'll see that that's not the end of it. It's going to get more intense to where Paul really essentially puts his foot down a little later in this chapter. Verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. Uh, and they all accompanied us, the wives and children, with wives and children, till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. 
When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So uh, here's Paul. I mean, he, he and his companions, they are leaving. Now, it was customary for the people, if you were a traveler in the first century, that you would walk with your guests to the edge of the city. That was the custom of the day. Uh, they're a very hospitable culture. However, it was not their custom to kneel down and pray. That's a Christian thing. And so when they get to that point, what a beautiful picture uh, of Christian love and concern. The other thing about that is, yeah, Paul had been warned, don't go to Jerusalem. But these people understand that the most effective way to protect Paul was to pray. It wasn't to restrain him. It was just, they simply prayed. Uh, I, I was sharing with the group before service this morning. We have a prayer uh, meeting here at 945, and y'all are welcome to come. That's open to anybody. I, I, I told them, I said, you know, I haven't had, there was a particular thought that came to me that hadn't come to me for over 30 years. And back, uh, I had a couple of businesses, and one of my businesses was a production company. And it took off, and, and uh, the business was doing well. And uh, I, I had started out by hiring one guy when my business started to prosper, and I, he was the guy that went to my church, and so I said, you know, hey, Gene, this guy's name is Gene, I said, let's pray every morning before we start and just give the day to the Lord and ask him for protection because we were doing dangerous work, and, and, and so we started doing that. Well, then I hired another guy from my church, <laughs> and we started, I said, you know, we, uh, you're on the clock at 7, we'll start work by 8, uh, and so, you know, that was fine. This other guy, we, the three of us did that. Well, it kept growing, and pretty soon I ran out of guys from, out of guys from my church to hire, so I started hiring guys out there from off the street. And I had to be careful because I didn't want, I wanted to be a witness, but I couldn't make prayer time mandatory for people that weren't walking with the Lord. And so I said, look, you're on the clock at seven, be here at seven, we'll start work at eight, <laughs> and, if you want to go wash your car or call your wife or whatever, that's fine. And, and no one will ever give you a hassle about that. And, and I was very clear with my employees. No, you don't hassle people because they don't want to pray. Well, one by one, they started coming in and they'd kind of hover around the outside. And then pretty soon, I had a dozen people working for me. And I, <laughs> I was sharing with the people this morning. At one point, I'm going, Lord, do you know how much it's costing me? <laughs> to pay these people for... A whole hour, I got 12 people on the clock, and and the word from the Holy Spirit was very clear. Pray. (laughs) Okay, I got it. So, and I thought about that this morning, because our our prayer group is growing, and I thought, wow, you know, I really, and and, and the Holy Spirit was like, pray. (laughs) So, we're going to pray. 9.45, Sunday morning, you want to be a part of that, come on down, because we don't care how many people there are. So, verse 7, he says, And we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now, Ptolemy was about halfway between, uh, they're going to end up in Caesarea, but it's about halfway between Tyre and Caesarea. And so they only go one day there. uh, And once again, they locate other believers and lodge with them overnight. Verse 8, uh, and on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. Now, that's Caesarea Maritima. There are two Caesareas in Israel. 
All right, the Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the mountains in what we call the Golan Heights now. Lovely place. I love being there, and I love the fact that we're, that's where Jesus uh, is with his men, and he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're a prophet, some say John the Baptist, and he goes, well, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter says those famous words, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and uh, powerful passage, big, huge pool there that they looked at as the, the entrance to the netherworld, and it was a very cultic, pagan place there. Uh, and that's where Jesus, I believe, he pointed to that pool, and he says, on your statement, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell, because that's what the pool was called. I'll build my church. It's not this Caesarea. Caesarea Maritima, uh, beautiful. The, the ruins there are beautiful. I've uh, been there a couple of times, and uh, it's, it's north of what we would, uh, modern-day Tel Aviv, which is uh, where Joppa was in the uh, biblical times. So anyway, they're on their way down the coast. Uh, the second map, yeah, like I said, it shows uh, that this is their last stop in, when he gets to Caesarea uh, before Jerusalem. Uh, so verse 8 again, On the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is important. Who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So one of the seven, yeah, this is the same Philip that we see in Acts chapter 6. In verse 2, it says, uh, now this is when there were a group of women, Hellenists, that were upset about the distribution of food in Jerusalem. The church is just getting going. And there were Hellenistic Jews who were Jews that were steeped in Greek culture. And then there were Hebrew Jews who were steeped in Hebrew culture. And there there was always a, a bit of a rub there. And so they were upset and they were complaining about it. And the, the, the apostles said, look, we don't have time for this. We really need to minister the word and be in charge of the things that God has called us to. And so they came up with a solution. And in, in Acts 6, 2, uh, it says the 12, the apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men. That's the seven of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, uh, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, one of those men was Stephen, the first martyr. Uh, read all about him in Acts chapter 7 and 8, especially. Uh, but one of those men also that was Stephen's companion at that time was this guy named Philip. So it's the same Philip who served alongside Stephen up until Stephen was stoned to death at the hands of an angry mob of Jews. <clears throat> it's the same Philip who, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, he found an Ethiopian eunuch sitting at the side of the road in his chariot, reading the prophet of Isaiah. Uh, and Philip goes up, questions him. He ends up leading the guy to, the, to Christ. <clears throat> he, and they get out of the chariot. He baptizes the guy, and then Philip is caught, snatched away. <laughs> the guy's there by himself. Same Philip. The same Philip who'd been forced to flee from Jerusalem after Stephen's death, uh, after when a great persecution had broken out at the hands of a Pharisee named Saul, who would later become known as the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, <clears throat> we read, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. 
Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So that's what happened. As a result of the persecution, the church exploded. And, and folks, all through church history, when the church comes under pressure, she thrives. Yeah, I, I actually, and I was sharing last week that I have concerns because it's been so easy to be a, a part of the body of Christ in our nation. And I don't have any beef about that, but I, I fear that the church has become soft. And, and folks, persecution is on the rise and it is coming and it will happen more. Uh, I'll guarantee you that it, this ain't over. <laughs> so anyway, it says that, that, uh, those arose, were scattered everywhere preaching the word and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So it had been 20 years since those events. So now, Imagine what it would be like, folks, put yourself in Philip's place. Uh, after having seen the atrocities which this guy Saul of Tarsus had committed, after having had to endure leaving your home, leaving your family, the ones you love, having to relocate, real hardship at that man's hand, and now he's standing at your door. Think about it. What would that be like? We'll come back to that. Verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. That's Philip's daughters. Now when Luke speaks of Philip's daughters being virgins, all he's essentially telling us, and in that culture what that meant was they were unmarried. All right? So he might as well say, he, and this man had four bachelorette daughters who prophesied. <laughs> so uh, something fascinating about this is that women in the Bible and women today, I believe that the gift of prophecy is alive and well. We do... Teach that, and the Bible teaches that the gifts did not stop with the end of the apostolic age and all of that. Um, that these women had the gift of prophecy. Now, I want to make a distinction here, though, because there are some that use this to claim things that I don't see borne out in the Bible. And I bring it up because there are some who conflate the gift of prophecy with the office of pastor. All right. Uh, I don't see that in God's word. So the question is, is, does prophecy exist? Yes, of course, absolutely. I believe that somebody who is called to be a pastor will have the gift of prophecy. It's part of that gift. It's part of that calling. However, somebody with the gift of prophecy is not necessarily called to shepherd the flock. So uh, it, it, there are two points of view and and. I'll share with you what our position is, is here as a church. Uh, are men and women completely equal? Absolutely, in, in completely in God's eyes. But there's what's called egalitarianism. You don't have to remember the, the fancy words. And complementarianism. Egalitarianism is that men and women are equal and they have the same roles and responsibilities. Therefore, if someone has, an, if you know of a church that has a female pastor, they have an egalitarian view. They say, well, the same roles and responsibilities apply to both. The other position is called complementarianism, and that is presented very clearly in God's word, especially in First and Second Timothy and the leadership epistles, is where men and women are absolutely equal and they have complementary roles. They don't have the same roles and responsibilities. And that's what 
uh, I'm talking about here. And it is not a dig on women in the least. It's not some misogynist view. It's simply that what God has created for order and order within the body of Christ. <laughs> Enough said on all that. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, it's possible too. Now, now the gift in itself, it's distinct. I, I, I'll talk a little bit more about prophecy here. Uh, it's possible that somebody with the gift of prophecy can foretell future events. A lot of times we think about that. We think, well, you know, they're foretelling uh, future events. But uh, if that's the case, I'll tell you what, Deuteronomy 18 is really clear. That word, uh, that prophetic word better line up 100% of the time. Because if it doesn't, you're under, and believe me, folks, there are people out there that are self-appointed super saints, sorry, (laughs) that would, in their own puffed up imagination, think that they have this gift of prophecy and they're out there trying to boss people around and set policy and doctrine for the church. Not so. Not so. On the other hand, it's not about foretelling, that gift is alive and well today as much as it is foretelling, especially when it comes to the word of God. It's it's foretelling the gospel. It's foretelling and showing how to apply New Testament truths and principles to current situations and needs that we have in our lives. That's all part of the prophetic gift. Because prophecy, it means to prophesy. It literally means to speak forth. So, uh, interesting here in the context of this passage that uh, all of Philip's four daughters had this gift, but none prophesied with regard to the Apostle Paul. Uh, so again, not and there's stuff, extra biblical stuff in church history and tradition and all that talk about these women being greatly used of God. And there is a very good chance that they were. I mean, Philip was one of those, he was all in, a powerful, powerful gift in his life. Uh, and so we don't know, but uh, valid nonetheless. So as we move on here, I want to look at another prophet uh, in verse 10, a guy by the name of Agabus, and he's an interesting dude. So let's talk about him. <laughs> verse 10, as we, and we stayed, as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So once again, we see someone who's familiar to us from earlier in the book of Acts. Uh, this guy Agabus, in chapter 11, he travels to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Antioch uh, in Syria. That's where Paul's home church was. At that time, Paul and Barnabas were there. Uh, and he prophesies of a coming worldwide famine. Uh, it's an interesting passage. Uh, and so what his prophecy does is it triggers the first offering... Uh, which at that time had been carried to the church in Jerusalem from Antioch. The offering that the men are carrying now is the second time that that had come about because the church was suffering greatly in Jerusalem. So verse 11, when he, Agabus, uh, had come to us, he took Paul's belt. Now I want you to, if you're a visual person, this one's fun. <laughs> Think about this. He takes Paul's belt. He says, hey, Give me your belt. You know, <laughs> I just picture this. I'm a visual, a visual guy, and, and I picture this guy saying, give me your belt. And then he ties himself up with it. It's like, this is kind of shocking. He, so he, he, when he came to us, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, 
so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now that's dramatic. But it's no more dramatic than he does this in the same spirit as the Old Testament prophets, uh, specifically Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They acted out their revelations at times. And this guy does the same thing. Like I said, he's an interesting guy. Uh, <laughs> what would it be like? Somebody comes and say, hey, give me your belt. <laughs> you give it to them, and they tie themselves up, and then they prophesy something. It's like, I would want to listen to him, and, and I would probably have one eye kind of maybe staring at my wife and you know, doing you know, the big eyes thing or whatever. But anyway, so that's what goes on. So... Uh, <laughs> In verse 12, it says, when we heard these things, uh, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So uh, Agabus made a statement. They took it in. Now, this guy must have packed some weight. I mean, he was known as a prophet. Uh, and But verse 12 shows that even Luke and Paul's traveling companions, they tried to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. So, And by this time, Paul has he's been hearing this a lot. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he rolled his eyes like, oh, here it comes again. Uh, but, I mean, he's determined. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He has a very, very strong witness inside that he needs to do this. Was Agabus' prophecy true? Yeah, it was. Was it from the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it was. But, again, they add a human application to Agabus' prophecy in pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem because their their interpretation of Agabus' prophecy is don't go. What I believe the Holy Spirit was doing with Paul was saying, I want you to be aware you're going to have problems. And folks, walking with Christ, I mean, there are so many situations that come up in our lives that you're not going to see on a Sunday school flannel, flannel graph. I mean, you know, you don't have the little, the cute little images and pictures and stuff. I mean, there are things that happen. There are scriptures in here, passages in here. One of the things I like to say is you're not going to read that on a Christmas card. We go through serious stuff. This is one of those deals. I mean, how would you like to get a Christmas card and, and somebody says, and they took his belt and they tied himself up? No, because there are serious things that we go through. And this is instruction. It's instruction. The Holy Spirit is giving Paul instruction. He's not prohibiting him. Verse 13, and Paul answered, he says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Uh, I'm I'm ready. Not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's one thing to be sitting here (laughs) reading this out of our Bibles. It's another thing for these men to be living it. And, And I invite you, think of difficult situations in your life where your relationship with Christ comes to bear. Understand, this is serious stuff. And yeah, I love poking fun at like Agabus. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, drama, drama. And yet he's really trying to carry out what he believes is what God is showing him. Also, something that, that strikes me about this is it's an emotional scene. Uh, again, Agabus, his prediction packs some weight. Everybody, the people with Paul and the people that were there at Caesarea, they're saying, don't go. Don't, Paul, whatever you do, don't go. Don't go. However, the unyielding strength 
of Paul's response uh, to their pleadings, it's, I think it's remarkable. Because for him, there's no choice to be made. For him, he's set. He knows what he's going to do. And, and it's like, okay, gentlemen, I appreciate your concern, but I'm going to do this. In Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 18, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I love that passage. One of my favorites. I talked about that last week. Oh, <laughs> there's a lot of them. Point is, he understood Paul was counting the cost. He understood that it was going to be dangerous. He understood that it was going to be very, very difficult. And yet, in his mind, it was like it, there was no question. It's like, I, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I know. I understand. Chains, troubles. Yeah, get it. I'm going. <laughs> and that's all there was to it. Uh, verse 14 says, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> all right, Paul, go ahead. It says, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. That's a key verse in this passage because they're acknowledging, look, Paul, you're not going against God's will. Evidently, you must have the strength of conviction inside that you're going to carry out what you believe to be God's will. So God's will be done. Give up trying. We're not going to try to talk you out of it anymore. Again, the warnings were meant to prepare Paul and not, not to deter him. And they genuinely cared about him. There were repeated requests to, to turn back. They're understandable. I have, uh, there have been times where, especially with some of my brothers, I have three older brothers, uh, that I've gone, uh, yeah, what are you doing? You know, and, and try to talk them out of going a particular direction. And usually because I was the kid brother to no effect. But, you know, I understand that. When you care about somebody and you see the potential for danger, you speak it. So it's not that they're out of line for their position in the whole matter. But essentially Paul is saying, yeah, but you're not me. And I know what I've got to do. Verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. So this third map I have, Caesarea to Jerusalem. Uh, they head out. And they're going up to Jerusalem. Now, as you see on the map, Jerusalem south of Caesarea, he says, well, we go up to Jerusalem. But you've got to realize they're at sea level at Caesarea. It's a coastal town. And Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet up. So it's about 75 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem, but it's a half mile up. So they're going up to Jerusalem. And next week, we'll look at Jerusalem. I want to talk about a couple of things as we begin to uh, to wrap up. A uh, little shorter study this morning. I'm hungry. Uh, <laughs> first of all, faced with a tough decision, all of us are. If you're not, you will be. And some pastoral advice, give it your best shot. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound very pastoral. But hear me out. And I'm not saying that we're haphazard in our decision making. But there are times where we're faced with tough decisions. Uh, and, and understand, I'm talking about decisions where none of our choices involve sin. That's a no-brainer. It's like, well, do I go this way or do I go this way? And this way leads to sin. No, you're not going that way. 
But what I'm saying is that there are times where it's kind of neutral on both sides of a decision or a choice that's set before us. At those times, I believe that's where certain principles based in God's word come into play. Uh, and as we're weighing out the best course of action, here are some of those principles. First is examine your motives. Folks, the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceive, deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know them? It doesn't say they're deceitfully wicked above some things. We can deceive ourselves. We can talk ourselves into things because we want what we want, after all. And it's always good to, to, to say, Lord, show me the motives of my heart. Peel that onion back because a lot of times it's a few layers down before I, and I have to get alone with the Lord to do this. And then say, Lord, just show me my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me. The next thing is bathe that thing in prayer. Don't be in a hurry. I, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day. He said, yeah, John, I've learned that it's a, a whole lot easier to make a mess than to clean one up. <laughs> it's true. When I have to be in a hurry about making this, a decision, that is usually one of the areas where the Holy Spirit will check my heart. Slow down. If you have to be in a hurry, you need to check that out. So bathe it in prayer. Uh, very easy to throw a prayer up and then go do it. I'm just saying, I'm human, just like you. And there are times where I've just thrown a prayer up. It's like, okay, Lord, I just pray. That you're no. Wait for a response. <laughs> Let him impress on your heart the best course of action. And that may not be the one that you want. That's when it gets hard. Being obedient, even though it doesn't... Look at what Paul went through. The next thing is to be open to godly counsel. One of my favorite <clears throat> Proverbs, <laughs> Proverbs eleven fourteen, says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety or victory, depending on the translation that you're reading. And I'll tell you what, if I am really stuck on something, and again, my decisions, the, the, which way I go doesn't involve an aspect of sin, uh, I'll talk to some brothers. I'll talk to my wife at length. I will really take the time to seek godly counsel from people that I trust and who I know have my best interests at heart. The last thing here, uh, as far as principles in making tough decisions from God's word is exercise, and I mean exercise, humility. It's also true that at times in attempting to discern God's will, we make mistakes. You know, it, it, it happens. I'm not going to go down the litany of mistakes that I've made, even with a good heart, with a good intentions. But you've got to be humble about it. It's where humility comes in. Don't get stuck in your pride trying to defend a poor decision. That's dangerous. And how many times uh, I have, like, uh, I, I remember growing up and being in an argument with my siblings, because I have a bunch of them. And I would know that I was wrong, but I'm not going to, I am not going to give, I'm not going to let them know why I was wrong. <laughs> And we can do that. I mean, as grown-ups, we can do that and we can get stuck in our pride and essentially become unteachable. Allow the Lord to work in your heart. Humble out. Repent 
<laughs> that's what's necessary. Acknowledge the error. Do what you can do to get back on solid footing, whether that's just between you and the Lord or it's with another person, whatever it is. And then here's an important aspect of that. Don't walk around under condemnation because you made a mistake. Move on. Allow God to to bring that correction if that's the case. Get your course straightened out and move on. Because the God of this world will be there to beat you up every time that you think about that thing. And every time you start going down that road, it's like, oh man, I screwed that up so bad. And No, no, no. no. Do what you can to be right with the Lord and to be right with others. Move on. Next thing I want to talk about is there are those times. Paul been warned how many times about going to Jerusalem uh, as he visited churches throughout Macedonia and then Troas and now in Caesarea. I spoke a moment ago about Proverbs eleven fourteen that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And there is. However, Paul's primary concern was not that of his own safety, but in obediently carrying out the call on his life. There's a vast difference between choosing to suffer. He wasn't choosing to suffer by saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. He was choosing to obey. And he knew that suffering might be part of it. No healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. If you do, come and see me after service. <laughs> it's, it's, well, I'm not signing up for that. But I know that as I walk with the Lord, as I carry out his will in my life, I might suffer. That's the difference. Uh, I talked about, you know, we have the ability to deceive ourselves too. I want to be careful here. There are those times where the witness of the Holy Spirit is so powerful within us that we must, we, we really truly come to the conclusion that we believe that we must obey regardless of the cost. And a lot of times doing the right thing. And, and if you hang around me very much, you'll hear that one of the things I say a lot is the right thing to do is always the right thing to do. Don't think about it. Don't, I mean, yeah, of course, you, yeah, yeah, I've thought it through. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that when I come to the decision that the right thing to do is the right thing to do, I'm not going to be wishy-washy about it. That's where I start straying into that area that Jesus warns of when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no and anything else is of evil. There are times where we have a strong conviction. It may not be the popular stance, but it's the right stance. There are those times. Paul said, he he, he talked about being bound in the Holy Spirit to go. Uh, His priorities were ordered in such a way that he was willing to die in the process. So as we make tough decisions, there are those times where, yeah, there's safety on one side of it and there's potential peril on the other. And yet, if that's what God is charging me to do, I want to be obedient And I'm going to give a a backseat to the fact that I might suffer because of it. Finally, what if it had been you? What if you'd been the one who'd been horribly wronged? Had your life torn apart? Had to leave your home, your loved ones behind? And now years later, the person that caused all of that, the person who was directly responsible for all of that is standing at your door and needs a place to stay. Easy, again, we can read Bible stories and these are great accounts and they're not just stories, they're true accounts. But as we apply this to our own lives, 
a little more difficult at times. Had a guy that worked for me, uh, ended up taking his own life, different story, but what happened at one point, God had, I wanted to fire this guy. He was one of those guys during that time where I had all the guys gathered in my office and pray. we prayed together. I baptized him. Um, he worked for me for a while and, and he had some real struggles with alcoholism and uh, there were times where he did things that I should have terminated his employment and God told me no because I was a Christian first and a boss second. So I bore with this guy for a long time and then all of a sudden he disappeared. And then in a town adjoining mine, a business sprang up that had a, it was a, a rubber stamp of my business even with the same name, but a slight variation. And one of my major accounts of well over a hundred and some thousand dollars a year was gone. I struggled with bitterness. He had gotten into my desk and gotten my rate sheets and come in just a little lower. I wrestled with bitterness and I'll never forget. I was driving down the road one day. I was on my way home from a road trip and I was listening to a Bible study the guy was talking about King David when he went into, when Saul went into the, the cave and uh, went to take care of business there and, and David went in and cut the edge of his robe and Saul went out going down the hill and, and, and David comes out, he's got this piece of fabric in his hand and, and Saul essentially says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, David, why didn't you kill me when you had the chance? And David's words, when I heard this in this particular, and I'd read it before, I'd studied it in school and all that. But when I heard it this time, this one particular moment, as I wrestled with bitterness over this guy that I had come alongside of and I had boosted up and I had gone the extra mile with, who had completely ripped me off. I wrestled with it. But what, what David told Saul in that moment, God burned into my heart and he said, the Lord will judge between thee and me. You're the Lord's anointed. I, God didn't tell me to kill you. My point in that, folks, is that that's where I, and in that moment, I was able to take this guy down. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've had like the post office wall in my mind. <laughs> and I was able to take his picture down. He showed up at my, at one, I had a, an office in the middle of a couple of shops on either side. He showed up at one of my shops one day and walked in and I walked over to him and I wrapped my arms around him and drew him close and told him I loved him. He about fell apart. And he said, I expected you were going to hand me my head. And I said, no, not today. No, I serve a more powerful God than that. My point in that what about forgiveness? Maybe you have somebody on the post office wall in your mind. Maybe there's somebody that you would just wrestle with or that you, even just being around them, you just, you just have this thing that wells up. It happens, folks. Broken relationships are a real thing because we live in a fallen world and we can either serve the flesh or the spirit in our own lives. I want you to understand the nature of forgiveness. And it's not about coming to a place where whatever the offense was that someone committed against you, where it's now okay. Chances are it's not okay. But that's not the, that's, that has nothing to do with a, having a forgiving spirit. True forgiveness. It's all about having the grace that's needed 
to release that person from the offense. What happened to me in that moment with this guy that had worked for me and had done me so wrong, and I had to fire a couple of guys. I had to let a couple of guys go because I lost the business that he took. I mean, it was a big deal for me. And yet in that moment, I was able to release him from the offense. You want to know what happened? I was set free. I was the one who was set free. Yeah, he was set free and he freaked out when I hugged him and told him I loved him. Because that wasn't me, that was the Holy Spirit within. But folks, here's Paul, knowing the things that he had done to those people in Jerusalem before he came to Christ, knowing that he had he had locked people up, knowing that he stood there holding the cloaks while they stoned Stephen to death, and he was giving approval, saying, "Yeah, get him." Knowing that one of Peter or one of Stephen's buddies was there, and now he's at his front door. There had to have been something that went on, and I would guarantee you that it was something that went on in the spiritual realm, in his heart, in Philip's heart, in order to say, come on in, Paul. Yeah, I've got a place for you to stay. It's about willfully, it's a willful act, folks. Forgiving is not an emotional thing. It it may be emotional. I'm not saying that it's not, that we don't have strong emotions. But forgiveness, true forgiveness is a willful act. And it's a, that it's a choice. I am choosing to release you. And the most wonderful, glorious thing about that is that we are the ones who are set free. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we, uh, as we race through this passage here in Acts 21, powerful imagery, powerful scenes, powerful statements. Lord, I don't know what you're speaking to each one here today, but I know what you're speaking to me. And I pray, Father, that as we take a moment, as we do business with you, that you would reveal it. If there's an aspect of bitterness, if there are tough choices in our lives, if there are people that have wronged us, whatever it is, as we take a minute with our heads bowed, our hearts bowed before you. Speak to us. Work in us. Have your way with us. We give you permission. And Lord, let that thing that's happening on the inside result in godly action. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We thank you. We love you. We praise you now in Jesus' name.